Hello and welcome to Inchun, the Scottish Music Centre's podcast series. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking to Fiona Shepherd, the music journalist from Glasgow City Music Tours. How's it going, Fiona? I'm okay, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good to see you after so long. Oh, I know. We're all, we're all missing our music industry contacts. Well, maybe, maybe some people aren't. Maybe people are seeing music industry contacts all the time via Zoom. But I feel I'm in my own wee kind of the Glasgow bubble. The only mm-hmm. people, people I bump into in the park. <laughs> so you starting, like, how did, how did your interest in music begin? Like, was it from school or after school? How did that happen? Um, oh, from school. I think probably like many children and teenagers, I just... Discover, started to discover music, loved it. I probably, you know, I guess music was always there as a backdrop, not so much, not necessarily in my household. My parents had a had a notoriously slim record collection, but I do remember that we had an old dance record player and uh, me and my brother and sister would play the 78s that my mum and dad had, and we didn't have very many. Um, but one of my all-time pieces favourite pieces of music has kind of lodged in my brain from that time and it's the Johnny Dankworth Orchestra's African Waltz amazing piece of music that was one of the the the, the seven inches that they had for some reason we never went anywhere near their albums and it wasn't till later on that I discovered my mum was a big Frank Sinatra fan and she had Come Fly With Me and a few other albums but there were, there were slim pickings so really I guess the radio was how I connected with music. And then by the time I got to my early teens, as it would be with lots of people, that's when I really started to love music. It wasn't just something to have on in the background. You know, it wasn't just tuning into Top of the Pops because I wanted to see what the dancers were wearing that week. It was <laughs> tuning in because I really wanted to hear who was in the charts and, and uh, you know, and what, what music was out there. Um, so, yeah, so from early teens, it really took hold strongly and became like a huge thing for me. You didn't study music like instruments and things like that. You didn't play an instrument, do you, at that point? It was just like I still don't interest. play an instrument. Although, right. well, I like to say that I can play the triangle, the spoons, the paper and foam, <laughs> um, the maracas. Oh, so that obviously makes me a multi-instrumentalist. Uh, but no, I don't, I don't play any instruments at all and I never have done. I, I was offered at school, I was offered the chance to play... I think it was the oboe and I knocked it back because I was just thinking, well, if it's not the guitar, I'm not interested. And they weren't offering the guitar. I mean, I think in retrospect, I have some regrets about that. I think it would have been good to go down that road and see how I got on. But given that I'm, I'm mildly asthmatic and that my puff is rubbish, <laughs> I'm not sure that would have been the way to go. So I didn't learn any instruments at school. I never have done. Um, so it was never about making music. It has always been about being a music fan. I think really more than anything else um and so that hence i think my my desire to go into music journalism mm-hmm. <laughs> you know they i wouldn't say i'm a frustrated musician they say music journalists <laughs> musicians i'm not i never really harbored ambitions to be a musician but i wanted to be close to the music and i loved writing so music mm-hmm. journalism seemed to be an obvious way to go no official study of mm-hmm. that you, you don't really need to i think you need a love of music and you need a, a, an ability to an opinion and, a, and an ability to express it so yeah. there was no official uh you know music courses or even official journalism courses mm-hmm. at all i just i just started doing what i love doing that's great i was going to say that how did you sort of find your way in was it through the writing or was it through the music like what was your sort of way into doing journalism well, um, where, uh, where I went to university to study, but not to study journalism. I think when we're way back in the mists of time, when I was an undergraduate, there weren't an awful lot of 
media courses anyway it was quite a that was quite a niche thing so I just did a general arts course at Glasgow Uni um, English and history mm-hmm. um, it was partly because I thought well will I will I still have this desire to do journalism when I leave university what what if I start doing the course and I decide it's not the way for me so mm-hmm. I suppose <laughs> I was kidding myself and thinking that I was keeping my options open <laughs> by doing a general arts course of course really what ended up being wonderfully was learning for learning's sake, knowledge mm-hmm. for knowledge's sake. And I'm, a big, I'm still a big advocate of that. It was a purely academic course. And, I, I, and you know, I really, I really loved it. Um, you know, two subjects I was, I was passionate about. But I did start writing. I, I, I left it late because I was quite pretty shy and not very not very proactive. Um, so it was, I think it was, wasn't until my final year at uni that I thought, well, if I want to do journalism, I'm going, I'm going to have to get some experience. So <laughs> I started writing arts reviews for the university paper and then by just sheer good luck and sheer timing um I as I was about to sit my final exams someone in the paper was headhunted by the list to go and be I think to do layout I think for them and I just thought oh yeah well if, if they can do it maybe I can do it and I contacted the list and they just happened to have an opening for someone to do their Glasgow music listings at that point. Right. So just very good luck with the timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it meant that the moment I graduated, I had a small amount of work in music writing. And I, I think I can honestly say everything I've done since then pretty much has stemmed from that start at The List magazine. Oh, that's amazing. And was it all art stuff you did? Was it like... You know, music, dance, and visual art. I, I, I always say I'm not a proper journalist. <laughs> I'm a critic. That's you. Know, I'm a critic. That's my job. I'm an arts critic. So I've never, I, I, you know, feature writing and and arts, but I've never done news. I feel that's a very different discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you do. I think training is really a good idea for to 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 do that. To do a course in that if you can. Um, because, but where, you know, whereas my, my my love was 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 the arts, and I was just fortunate that I managed to get an opening yeah. at a time when arts journalism was fairly well resourced. And um, of all those things you've done, whether it's you know, you know, dance or, or music or you know, an album review or a gig review, like what's been your sort of, what's been the standouts for you that always stand out for you? Things that you might look back and go, oh, that was I'm glad I was at that. Oh yeah, all oh, for for gigs and stuff. Yeah, um, I think. I mean, people that often ask me what's your all-time favorite gig, and I just mm. can't answer that. I just don't know. I've been to far too, too difficult. <laughs> um, so I really, I, I just, I don't know. But but I suppose one thing that does always stand out for me, I can definitely say what my favorite ever festival gig was, and that was seeing David Bowie at Glastonbury in two thousand. Oh, so that was, you know, I, I think people that gig acquired a sort of legendary status. It's been shown again on television. Mm. To be in the field while that was happening was really special. There were rumours going around the festival all that weekend that Bowie was going to do a greatest hit set. Now, if anyone knows anything about Bowie in through the 90s, um, in fact, really throughout his career, he was always uh, quite choosy about what he did from his back catalogue and it was always about promoting the new material. Well, as anyone that's seen or was there, seen that set, they will know that it was... It was a greatest hits extravaganza. No, I mean not so much greatest hits, just like di- deep dive into the back catalogue. Lots of tracks from Station to Station, which is probably my favourite Bowie album. I think they did about two thirds of that album. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are only six tracks anyway, aren't there? So, uh, 
And it was just stunning. He was in amazing form. His band at that time, which is the band that he kept until he stopped playing live in the early 2000s, stunning, stunning band. So lots of, I mean, Glastonbury is very special anyway, I think. And so lo- that, that's, you know, and that was actually the very last time I was at Glastonbury. So I definitely went out on a high. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> on a festival front, another gig that stands out for me, but maybe not for quite the same reasons, but in terms of legendary, like legendary shows, I was at the the uh, the the legendary Nirvana headline gig at the at the Reading Festival in 1992, mm-hmm. and you know that one has gone down in history as being one of the all time greatest gigs. Well, it wasn't for me. I was standing at the back of the field, wet, muddy, fed up. Not you know it was, the weather had been terrible. <laughs> I was I was kind of ambivalent about Nirvana. <laughs> so this is the one where Kurt Cobain's wheeled on in a wheelchair with we're now going. Yeah. And yeah, I felt very disconnected from that that gig. So I can say I was at it, but I definitely didn't appreciate it. And then sort of closer to home, I guess it's always special to see bands at the start of their career before they go on to great things and maybe not even realising that they're going to go on to great things. So for me, King Tut's in the early 1990s was a great place to be hanging out because every week there would be somebody performing there that went on to greater things. And to this day, my favourite ever gig I've ever seen at King Tut's was in the summer of 1990. So not long after the, the venue had opened. Mm-hmm. And I bought a ticket to see, I don't even know why I did it. It was a band from London that I'd never even heard of them mm-hmm. because they were about three months away from releasing their first single at the time. So obviously me and everyone else in the room must have just have taken a punt. And we were very glad we did. We saw the first ever Scottish gig by Blur. Oh, I Mm-hmm. And Blur played as if they were playing to about 40,000 people. It was just wow. incredible. And that, so that was the start of a lifelong love affair with the music of Blur and, mm-hmm. and Damon Albarn's um, output in general. Mm-hmm. At that time, I also saw the first like, gig in Glasgow by the Manic Street Preachers. I saw Pulp playing to, you know, kind of fairly sparsely populated King Tut's Radiohead <laughs> supporting Strange Love. So, wow. you know. It was great. That, that's kind of, I suppose they stand out. Some of those gigs were phenomenal gigs, but I think it's also just thinking about what happened to those acts afterwards and glad that I was at those shows. Mm-hmm. I totally I mean, there's gigs like that I've missed. There's the one, they were back to back. Snow Patrol was back to back with Coldplay and Tuts. And I chose to go and see Snow Patrol and missed the Coldplay show in Tuts, which would have been a great thing to see way back when they first started. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nirvana, I'm glad you mentioned Nirvana. It's a band that I wish I'd seen. But I was just a little bit late, but did manage to. The first gig I was at was actually Foo Fighters in the Barras. It was the very first gig I went to. Yeah. Um, that was their first tour in Scotland. Actually, another one, I've just remembered another one. I was thinking about gig clashes and when I made the right decision. So there was, <laughs> I think in the late 1980s, was a band called Birdland were playing at Fury Murray's. And I think my sister went to that show, but I chose to go to the other show that was on that night. And that was the Stone Roses at Rooftop. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, at that point the, the, their, their debut album had, had had come out at that point so they were definitely about to go supernova mm-hmm. and rooftops was so rooftops the, um, the, the building's no longer there it was a it was a it was a, a was as the name suggests a rooftop club top mm-hmm. floor um, on Sucky Hall Street um, and just a kind of fairly scuzzy nightclub. I loved mm-hmm. it. Lots of kind of like goth nights there. I used to go, right. go, go to the goth disco there. Um, and um, I guess maybe, I'm going to guess it was maybe a 400, 500 capacity venue. So it was absolutely rammed to the rafters. 
And you knew, without a doubt, you knew, because by this point, it was clear where the Stone Roses were going. Mm -hmm. And the gig was oversubscribed because they could easily have played a much larger venue. So you could tell they were on that trajectory. Very, very special. And actually, the other thing I remember about that gig was that was, so that was, that was the day, a couple of days or the day after I got back from my first ever Glastonbury, mm-hmm. which had been very, very sunny. And I hadn't taken any suntan. I'm completely ill prepared for Glastonbury in so many ways. Hadn't had taken wellies with me, hadn't needed them, hadn't taken suntan lotion. So I think I had about five layers stripped off my nose and I was I, I was a, a bright red nose and was feeling quite self-conscious, but I kind of forgot about it all when I when I saw the band. Yeah. So that was a pretty special gig. Wow. And is that, were you there as a fan or as a writer? Like, what was that? I wasn't writing at that point. I was still at uni. That was, um, so that was, the, I, I bought a ticket. Yeah. I mean, all, all, the, all, my, all the way through my university years, I was probably seeing at least two gigs a week because there were so, so many gigs happening in Glasgow and the student unions, as well as in various clubs around the around the city so there was never any shortage of stuff and that was that was how I did my socializing and how I met all my friends we we went to shows that were part of club nights Mm -hmm. so and go back to the sort of writing that when did it change from from the list did you move to the Scotsman after that or did you yeah well I I continued to write for the list I never really stopped writing for the list but I I guess the the list has always been a, a great sort of jumping off point for people. Mm-hmm. And some of the writers that I worked with, you know, moved to London and started to edit magazines in London and, and things like that. And one of the one of our writers moved to become the arts editor of The Scotsman and basically asked me if I would start writing for them. Right. And that would be the mid-90s. And mm-hmm. so that was that and I've, and I've been writing for them ever since mm-hmm. basically so that was how I got the start there so that, I suppose that's what I mean when I say the list sort of started everything yeah. because from that I got a couple of other writing gigs as well mm-hmm. um so that was where that was kind of like the foundation for the career and then I kind of went on from there mm-hmm. so a long relationship with a Scotsman yeah. um, which again continues to this day and does it feel different like having obviously going through printed media and like digital media does it feel different for you as a writer does it as for the sort of user as it would be now or the reader it doesn't really for me but that might be because I'm a bit of a dinosaur but I don't know that the writing should necessarily change anyway I mean the, the heart of what you're doing is mm-hmm. the same um I guess online you're less bound by word count yes. but if you are being paid by the words then word count still which I am mm-hmm. word count is still a thing so I'm I'm big on what's my word count what's my deadline which is quite mm-hmm. old school mm-hmm. uh, but but still it's still relevant anyway for journalism so I I kind of approach it the same way because it's really the medium that's changed it's not the message so moving from from the writing and the journalism that you do the walking tours which has been a massive success that I've been delighted to see it many times and watch it grow. Um, we've obviously been hosting the, the intro part for, for Celtic Connections and for the other ones through the year. Um, where did the idea come from? Where, where did that all come from? So me and a couple of friends decided to set up um, the company's called Glasgow Music City Tours. And we, I guess the idea, my colleague, Jonathan, it was really, it's his idea he was someone I knew from the list in the 90s he was the music editor of the list in the 1990s but he kind of moved on to do other things not really music related and I think he still had this idea that he'd like to have do a company where we do music themed walking tours but he kind of felt like he needed me as the, <laughs> as the person with the music knowledge and I think 
we, you know, we we've been talking about it um, over over beverages over his kitchen table for several years, and I think we just eventually decided we had to bite the bullet. I mean, one of the one a catalyst I think really was Glasgow becoming a UNESCO city of music in 2008. I mean, we we didn't start the company till 2015, mm-hmm. but so we started talking about it seriously in 2014. Um, I think. Knowing that we had Glasgow had the status, world status, yeah. but it wasn't, it, I didn't feel like we were shouting about it that much. You know, the, the, the UNESCO title doesn't come with the budget. You, the city has to resource it itself. And if there's not the budget, there's not the budget, or if there's not much of a budget. And we just thought, you know, we, we know, we already know the city. I mean, we, the, the reason Glasgow got the title UNESCO City of Music is because of its rich music heritage as, 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 as much as its, its fertile you know, mm-hmm. scene that it's had going for years. So past and present. And we just thought, let someone needs to shout about this. We need to, we need to, you know, officially be saying there's a, there's an amazing music scene in this city, Amber's amazing music history. Mm-hmm. It's such an interesting, you know, and it's so interesting. I, you know, I thought I knew a fair amount about music in Glasgow through my work, but <laughs> I learned so much researching the tours. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of what is in the tours is not stuff I knew before I started researching them. Um, so that was really the reason why we thought we would do it. And there, were, there wasn't any other business like that at the time. W- Walking Heads, they were an app, like a self-guided app. So there was a self-guided app that you could get, uh, which is great. It means you can just download it yourself and walk around, you know, at your leisure yourself. But we wanted to have a, a kind of more old school group experience where you're led around by a guide who points things out and you have the communal experience of being in the group. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that we realised quite quickly about our tours was we appealed to locals as much as visitors and locals would, it was a way of studying memories of gigs for them. Mm-hmm. So actually a lot of the content of our tour now is stories that have been told to us by our customers. You know, they had lots of funny tales to tell us and if the tale was funny enough and pithy enough we we added it to the tour so yeah. it's been a real exchange as well it's not it's yeah. not a we're going to impart lots of information to you it's more of an exchange i think really which um is great for us and hopefully great for our customers uh, even the, the i know you go to the barrowland there's a park in the barrowlands and i think that's probably a good thing to start memories of people who have maybe been at shows and and don't know that that park exists there yeah, I mean, we, we, we often on our tours are taking people to places that we don't know exist. So Barrowland Pathway is one, the Alban Pathway, much loved, much loved in our tours, a real highlight for a lot of people. And even those who are visitors to the city and don't know Barrowland, when they see the names of who's performed at Barrowland on that Alban Pathway, I think they're quite impressed. They, they start to grasp what that venue might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and an, another place that I think people are really delighted to visit is the Britannia Panopticon Music Hall. So we have the world's oldest surviving music hall here in Glasgow and it is a time warp. It's incredible. Really really special place. Mm -hmm. So I think again, and but it's tucked down a lane, Mm -hmm. you know, so a lot of people who live in Glasgow, never mind visitors, don't even know it exists. So that's a real pleasure to take Mm -hmm. people in and 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 let them see and explore that slice of history yeah i mean i never knew that existed until i worked where i work in and you know passing down through trongate i think it was a colleague that told me that it was there mm-hmm. and it's like the people who have been through that music hall is incredible like well absolutely dan laurel made his stage debut there harry lauder i mean so maybe people don't know who harry lauder is now but at one point harry lauder was the highest paid entertainer in the world 
Mm-hmm. He was a music hall superstar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he played there. Um, I won't I won't go into too much because obviously we want people to come out in our <laughs> I can tell them the stories who's played there. <laughs> and, and through the, the pandemic that we've sort of found ourselves in over the last year and a bit, um, has that massively affected the tours? Like, were you unable to do them or did you do socially distanced tours or things? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, obviously I, I work in sort of tangentially and I'm not, I don't know if I would strictly say I'm in the music business, but I'm related to the music mm-hmm. business and in tourism. So the two industries that are worse affected by the pandemic, I couldn't come out of it unscathed. I lost about half, I've lost about half my work. Wow. Um, that It made a turn though. This is the thing, the work made a turn. But um, I, I'm, I'm down to about half of what I would do before. And in terms of the tours, we just had to wait until we were allowed to restart the tour. So normally as a season, we would run from about April to October, roughly. Um, we were we were able to start in August when things started opening up again, but fully outdoors. So one of the prior to the pandemic, one of the things that we would be doing in our tours is we would be taking people into a couple of venues on each tour. We don't take people into every venue that we talk about, but we had a couple where we would go inside and people would get to see what the venues looked like. Obviously that was out the window. The venues were shut anyway, but even if they hadn't been, we would have needed to have been very careful about what we were doing. So we ran from we ran a half season basically from August to October, fully outdoors. Um, so obviously that helped with with the safety aspect, with smaller numbers, with social distancing and hand sanitising at the start of the tour. And with all of that, we were able to operate our tours. It actually didn't it didn't feel like it disrupted the tour too much. Actually, we it felt like we could you know all our customers were very understanding of the fact that we could, they couldn't go indoors. Possibly quite happy not to be going indoors anyway, and. The weather wasn't too filthy, so <laughs> because I think I think the, one of the original concepts in the tour was oh, we need some indoor stocks. It's Glasgow, yep. <laughs> the weather's rubbish. Um, so I was slightly nervous about. I thought if, if we've got a really bad weather day, then people are going to be outdoors for two hours with next to no shelter. But I actually worked out okay, mm-hmm. um, and 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 we we presume whenever we're allowed to resume the tours, and obviously we don't know exactly when that will be. Again, it will be entirely down to uh, restrictions and when it's safe to reopen. But when we do, we envisage that we will be in the same position as we were at the end of last year. It will be reduced numbers. It will be an outdoor tour. Um, every individual like group that comes will be socially distant from each other and from me. But we, we, we originally, when, we, when we originally conceived the tours, we wanted to pick slightly less trodden paths around the city. We didn't want to be walking on busy streets. So, in fact, we're in quieter streets anyway, where it's easier to keep your distance, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who, who knew that when we were conceiving the tour back in 2014, 2015, that it would be so useful during a pandemic? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and what's the, what's the future looking like then for the tours? Are you quite hopeful for them? starting back this year well I think I mean you know I think unlike other businesses I think we were we were quite fortunate that we were able to adapt quite I mean every business has had to adapt of of that nature I think we were lucky that our um, adaptation wasn't too drastic or radical for us so you know, we, we're confident that we can, once we're allowed to, we can start back on that basis again. And, and we have no idea when we'll get back in venues because I think we all appreciate that, you know, gigs were the first thing to end. 
and they'll probably be the last thing to come back. So I think we just feel that we're going to have to carry on as we are for now. And it will be, you know, it will be with reduced numbers as well. So we, we don't, as a, as a company, we don't have massive overheads. It's not like we have offices or, you know, we, we are outdoor offices that is the great outdoors. So, you know, in terms of that, we, we because we don't have a huge amount of overheads. Okay. We didn't, we didn't make very much money through the pandemic, but we didn't lose an awful lot of money either. It was kind of almost just, we, kind of just sort of almost like breaking even I suppose if you like mm -hmm. so we'll, we'll, we'll just carry on you know I don't I, I, I would imagine there'll be no international groups coming in this year mm -hmm. um so again we'll be we're, again we're, we're I think having that local audience means that we have um we have an audience that other tour companies maybe don't have um, so I guess again we have we haven't we have an advantage there we'll, we'll be able to operate I think we're confident we can operate in a modest way and just very gradually build back uh -huh. as things kind of as things kind of resume. So Super. I would say we're we're fairly we're cautiously optimistic. Great. And just out of curiosity, what was the last gig you were at pre-lockdown? Oh, it was the lightning seeds at St. Luke's. <laughs> wow. On the Friday, the Friday before well, it wasn't the Friday before lockdown, because there was a whole week before um before we before we actually went into full lockdown. But when the gigs finished, I think, on the Sunday. Mm -hmm. So the Friday was the was the was the my last gig. And it was amazing. And of course, I knew it was I knew it was gonna be the last gig I was gonna mm -hmm. see for ages. Mm -hmm. Um so and there was there was a slight bit of trepidation. Mm -hmm. My editor had said to all the arts critics, if you don't want to go and review these events because now we know what's happening, then that's fine, you don't have to go. But I decided I would go and mm -hmm. fulfill my last commitment. And it was bittersweet. Mm -hmm. It was brilliant, mm -hmm. but it was bittersweet to be in a crowded venue with friends, yeah. um, having a, having a few light refreshments and yeah. listening to some classic pop music. So I, 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 that one will linger long in the memory, let me tell Fantastic. you. But I should actually say um, it's semi-related. Literally two days after that, no, three days after that, and the Monday after that, my editor came up with a very very smart idea to introduce um, a series called the Scotsman Sessions where we ask musicians in lockdown mm -hmm. to perform a song for us exclusively for the Scotsman to be hosted on our website uh, with the arts critics writing a little intro to go with it. That's amazing. Um, so knowing that live events weren't going to happen, we moved over very quickly to mm -hmm. online events, as it were, preserving our live music, our, our, our arts, live arts budget, uh, giving work uh, mm -hmm. and money to artists as well as to the writers. And so the Scotsman Sessions continues so um, to this day. So that's mm -hmm. one of the things that's kept me going through lockdown is yeah. being able to contribute um, writing to the Scotsman Sessions. And we've hosted people like Katie Tunstall, Amy McDonald, Justin Curry of Delamitri. Uh, I don't want to give too much away. We've got a very special one coming up in a couple of weeks, maybe a certain postman from Airdrie might be featuring um, in our in our Scotsman sessions coming up. So that's been that's been great. That's been a great success. It's not, it, of course, like everything to do with online gigs and stuff during lockdown. Mm -hmm. It is second best. Yeah. To gigs, to live what, gigs. It is what the a great idea, though. That's a brilliant idea. That I never knew anything about. Yeah. Check them out. Yeah. Funny as well, the, the Lightning Seeds was the very first single I ever owned. It was on CD and it was, uh, was is it Lucky You it's called? Which is the very yeah. first single I ever owned. Um, and the last gig I went to see was before, um, was in Sleazy's, which um, 
a jazz drummer called Moses Boyd, which is exceptional. Oh, wow. Um, he is phenomenal. I love him. Oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> I managed to catch him in Sleazy's. It was great. But again, it was a very strange gig. I think people were a wee bit apprehensive. Mm-hmm. And I, I literally drove in and drove out. I was mm-hmm. in and out dead quick. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, feeling that was absolutely wonderful chatting with you and great to hear more about you. It was brilliant. Thank you mm-hmm. so much for taking the time. No problem at all. Take care.